Well, now, one of you, I don't know which one or who, pushed a note under my door this morning, and there was a footnote in it, or a postscript, which gave me most immense joy. And the writer said, I can understand how you might have misgivings as regards what's happening as a result of the focus of this type of retreat. For me, it points out the urgency with which I, together with my wife, need to reach out to the community just as the early missionaries did. And I don't know who wrote it, but it's very encouraging because this retreat has been so completely different to any other retreat I myself or any other retreat director has given. You don't normally give all the conferences on history. And therefore, I did take an enormous risk. But on the other hand, you who love this house will appreciate with me that there was a chance, and it was Father Tucker's idea, that at the time of the bicentennial, that people in every part of the states might hear about the beginnings of the American church. But there is an end to it, and that is that we go away at least encouraged. I do so feel that the torch that these early men carried is now in our hands, and that therefore we can't just talk about the past, we've got to think to the future. It was Father Martin last night who suggested that when the tapes are done, that they should be called from the by to the tri, which means from the bicentennial to the tricentennial, suggesting that we now have the job that men like John Carroll had. We are moving into a world where we no longer have spiritual reading but spiritual listening. Or as I once remarked by accident, we are turning from bookworms to tapeworms. <laughs> and therefore, there's no question that tapes will play a very great part in the future, that the shut-ins, even people in prison, you get people with their car driving to work, that there you can hear a tape and in a modern age learn about the past. So I do th thank the writer very much. I would hate you to go away feeling that because I talked about the history of Maryland that somehow it wasn't a retreat. It's just like if you study the journeys of St. Paul, you may not at the moment pray about them, but your spiritual life is deepened. But now I'd like to tie up the string, the threads that uh, have held all these conferences together because it is my own theory, after many years studying history, that not only does everything repeat itself, but the hand of God is seen almost working in the same way every cycle of a few centuries. So yesterday, when we were talking about the persecution of the church in Britain, I mentioned Edmund Campion, who, after all, now is a saint and a most outstanding man in every way. But then he had his companion, Father Robert Parsons, one of the most hated Jesuits in history, and that's saying something. And Father Parsons was run down, and the Protestants made up yarns about him, and even the secular clergy and even some Jesuits disliked him enormously. Why? Because he was a very efficient man, and he had one thing only to do, and that was to preserve the English church. He was in exile for practically three-quarters of his life. He was a convert, and there he lived on the continent in Spain, and in Belgium, and in France, and in Italy. He spoke many languages. He gave his whole life to being sure that the supply of priests went on. He's the only Jesuit whose picture is in my little room on the Isles of Scilly. 
I haven't even got a statue of St. Ignatius, but I have one of Father Parsons, because he really was the arch-Jesuit. Now, Parsons, he founded two colleges in Spain, as you know. Father Andrew White, for one, studied there. And then eventually, in 1593, which is a long time ago, he started his famous school in the north of France at St. Omer's. It wasn't a seminary. It was a school for English people. You had to have at least one English parent, father or mother, to get your boy in. And though he lived there, and all the students lived there in the north of France, everything was done to be sure that, that this school remained English. And to this school, right back since 1593, came all those heroic people, Father White went there for one, heroic people, mothers and fathers, contributed to keep the school going, and nearly all the boys, one way or another, distinguished themselves. And a great number of them became priests, and so therefore St. Omer's ran for a hundred and something, fifty years, without failing, even though there was a terrible persecution in Britain, and of course a terrible persecution in Maryland. In 18th century Maryland, the situation was desperate. The Puritans got control. They, the enormous acts of Parliament were passed so that Catholics would be fined. Priests were even arrested and put into prison. It's the most disgraceful story how Maryland that started as Catholic ended up just before the Independence Day almost as intolerant as Boston, which is saying something. So therefore, the, the men for boys from Maryland came to St. Omer's and the men from Philadelphia, and John Carroll was one of them. And this tremendous school went on for so long until the Jesuits were suppressed. Indeed, if just before the Pope suppressed the Jesuits, the King of France expelled the English college from St. Omer's after it had been there for so many years. So they wanted to catch the, all the boys. They had the dirty trick. They wanted to take the place at the time when the parents had just paid the school fees. So they'd get all the money, and they wanted, they thought they could, that they would arrest the Jesuits and send all the boys home, or take the whole school over and run it as a secular school. Luckily, there was a very intelligent Jesuit about, and he discovered their plans, and so one day the whole school was transferred from... St. Omer's to Bruges. This father, who was a genius, he found out, and he didn't tell the boys, but he told John Carroll and all the others who were there, and on a certain day, they said to the boys, we're going for a picnic, but would you like to take you upstairs one at a time and bring down your toothbrush and your pictures of your home and your pajamas? So every boy, not knowing why, went upstairs, and then they all came down again, and they all set out as though they were going for a picnic. And all the French police, etc., waved them goodbye, thinking they'd be back in the evening. They didn't. They went on across the frontier and shifted the whole school to Bruges. And then the schools flourished at Bruges for ten years. And it was there that John Carroll taught, and he was there at the time when the Pope suddenly suppressed the Jesuits. So poor John Carroll was absolutely defeated. Whether he would have ever come back to Maryland, I don't know because he was very happy in Europe. He'd been there over 20 years. But when the society was suppressed, he really had nowhere to go. He went to England first and, very touchingly, stayed for two years as chaplain to Lord Arundel of Warder, the same great family from which Anne Arundel came here to Maryland. And then he came back on the last boat, as I said, before the Independence War. 
he got back to Baltimore and lived with his mother, and there he found this terrible state of dejection. The first thing he did was to send Lord Arundel, just before the war broke out, the things he'd promised, Virginia hams and two little birds. The two little birds died on the way, but the hams eventually arrived. After that, the independence war stopped the trade in hams. So then after that, uh, John Carroll found all the Jesuits in the state of complete sort of desolation. And he's a man of enormous integrity, about whom I'll say a little now and at another talk. Just as we saw earlier in the tapes about the great Lord Baltimore, George Colbert, who succeeded because he was a very honorable man, and therefore no Protestants could touch him, and when he became a Catholic, he could say mass in his house and could establish Maryland, thanks to his extraordinary integrity. So John Carroll was a man like that. He was very rich, because the Carrolls had much land here, but they didn't start rich. His father, who came over here in the middle of the 18th century, and then his brothers and cousins, though they were very rich men, they were also completely honest. There's hardly any scandal attached to the Carroll family, and of all the Carrolls, John was by far the most outstanding. So that even those who hated the Jesuits and hated the church couldn't do anything about it. John Carroll had to be in every kind of political government. After all, his cousin signed the Act of Independence. Now, the people of those days didn't like the Jesuits at all. I found a most extraordinary passage from two of your presidents, which makes it all sound rather comical. Uh, one of them was John Adams. When the Jesuits were going to be restored again, John Adams, it says here, John Adams, who as a young man of 20 years old, had found only nonsense and delusion in the idea of a priest, and was happy to see that a Jacobite or a Roman Catholic was as rare in America as a comet or an earthquake. Well, when the Jesuits were restored round about May 1816, he wrote to Jefferson, I do not like the late resurrection of the Jesuits. They have a general now in Russia, in correspondence with Jesuits in the United States, who are more numerous than everybody knows. Shall we not have swarms of them here, in as many shapes and disguises as ever a king of the gypsies, Bamfield Moore Carew himself, assumed in the shape of printers, editors, writers, schoolmasters. If ever any congregation of men could merit eternal perdition on earth and in hell, it is the company of Loyola. <laughs> Our system, however, of religious liberty must offer them an asylum. But if they do not put the purity of our elections to a severe trial, it will be a wonder. To which Jefferson replied on August the 6th, I dislike with you the restoration of the Jesuits because it marks a retrograde step from light towards darkness. So much as you may like all your glorious patriots, <laughs> they're a funny lot. So therefore, the only man who could possibly have held the thing together was John Carroll because he was such a honorable man and so important in Maryland that all these Washingtons and other couldn't ne neglect him. Now when he came back the first thing he had to do was to try and support his poor Jesuit colleagues who now were simply dumped down as secular priests without a diocese just living here in this very area. And then he fought an enormous battle with the ex-Jesuits and with the future secular clergy etc to preserve the Jesuit property intact. 
See, the Jesuits never had collections in Maryland. The people didn't support them. Because they were among the first pioneers who came over here, they were allotted land by Lord Baltimore, as all the first colonists were. According to how much you contributed to the voyage of the Ark and the Dove, so you were given land when you got here. So the Jesuits had uh, plantations here, uh, which they had been given because they had supported the expedition from the first. And then they had a curious thing. They were so much loved by various Indians, including that great emperor, that the emperor gave them a farm, and so they were able, with their farmland, to support themselves. Once the Jesuits were cancelled, you can imagine what happened even in the Holy Roman Catholic Church. First of all, some of the old Jebbies wanted to take their farms away and go off and be private people and blow the money. I don't know what on. Holy water, I hope. <laughs> and then there were, of course, other priests from Ireland and Germany who saw all this property going, and then there were all sorts of bishops. It was really like the vultures in Louisiana. So John Carroll fought a tremendous battle that neither any ex-Jesuit nor anybody else should touch this land which was given to the Jesuits by the Indians and by the white people for the development of the church in America. He didn't feel it would ever be right for anyone, Jesuit or not, to break this up. Well, he fought a tremendous battle, of course, and won. There was an enormous attempt to take away the farmlands here, and especially at White Marsh, now Bowie, where he, the Jesuit novice was going to be made. So John started with that, and that made him, he had a bloody nose by the end, and he, everybody blasted him, but he was such an honorable man that he was bound to win. Then came a much more odd thing, which you'd never understand, that Maryland's the only church I know where nobody seems to have been confirmed for 200 years. There was no bishop. The Puritans were so bloody-minded in every part of the state that the Episcopalians never had a bishop either. And that's a key thing for them too. So in Virginia, they had no bishop. They were afraid if they brought a bishop over, the very, very left-wing nonconformists would make a fuss. So out of prudence, neither the Catholics nor the Episcopalians had a bishop of any sort. I was asking Father Tucker, but he wasn't old enough to know what happened. Um, <laughs> it, it, apparently, nobody was ever confirmed. So here was a church running on one sacrament short. I don't know what they did. I suppose John Carroll and those who went to Europe got confirmed, but probably Mrs. Carroll got to heaven without the holy oils. Well, eventually it was quite clear. While the Catholic Church was under Britain, Maryland was ruled by a, one of the four vicars apostolic in England, Bishop Challoner. And he was a saintly man, but he never came here, and he was so preoccupied with himself that all he did was to give faculties for confession. But... No bishop came, but they, London officially uh, had a command. So once the independence war came, uh, Challoner was delighted to, to give up any title he had, and so they didn't have a bishop at all. So they didn't know what to do. And as all the priests were ex-Jesuits, it was extremely hard to know how to get the thing to come right. Well, it so happened, as you know, it's the most remarkable story to read, and I wish we could have a film on it, when the Independence War began, the Patriots wanted to get the Canadians to come in on the American side. And so Benjamin Franklin, in old age, in a coach, rode all the way, bumped up and down to Toronto to see, or Montreal, to see if he could bribe the Canadians. They've since come with the ice hockey, but... <laughs> and 
he asked that John Carroll would go with him, which shows what a sort of man John Carroll was, that though John Carroll was a Catholic priest and a Jesuit, didn't worry Benjamin Franklin. He thought that Carroll was the right man to go with him. I, I think another Carroll went too. So they all, they rode, I think it took them about a week, terrible journey, up to Canada, and there they got a very bad reception. All thanks again to Boston. Because when they got to Canada, the English government, having just captured Canada ten years before, and England hated the Catholics too, but the government decided in England that they had no option but to make the Roman Catholic Church official. Canada was almost entirely French at that time and entirely Catholic. And therefore, though the English government hated doing it, they had to say that the Catholic Church was illegal and that Mass could be said in public. They had to do that because they couldn't otherwise. They'd had such riots up in Montreal and Quebec. Well, this infuriated the Bostonians. The thought of that priests are going to say Mass in public and then come down to Boston and the whole of America will be flooded with these awful Jesuits. So the Boston people were furious. And so then the Canadians got furious with the Boston people. And when Carroll and Franklin came there, the old bishop would hardly talk to Carroll. And Carroll describes his amazing attempt to try and explain things. But the Canadians were not going to have anyone who didn't support the Quebec Act. So it was a failure of completely, in a way. And when they set back coming home, they were in a state of great depression. And Benjamin Franklin was taken ill on the way, and Carroll nursed him in his silly old coach till they got back to Philadelphia. So they failed in Canada, but what did happen was that when they said we must have a bishop for the new American church, Benjamin Franklin let it be known that the man they would like to have the government of America was Carroll. So in a way, we could say a prayer for Benjamin Franklin. It wasn't all he do with it, but we could say a prayer because it was his services, because John Carroll was so good to him on that journey, that really got Carroll made the first bishop of the United States. Well, um, what happened then was, and it's so sad to think of it, when John Carroll heard there was a question that he might be made bishop, the first bishop ever, he wrote to Rome and he wrote to all the authorities saying, no, the American church must elect its own bishop. It's one of the only times in church history uh, the idea that the congregation should elect their bishop. And amazingly, because Rome knew nothing about America and there were no bishops or traditions here, Rome gave way. So for the first time in the history, I think perhaps certainly of the Western church, the bishop was elected by the priests. And unanimously, every one of them, 21 of them, all voted for John Carroll. When he died, Archbishop Neal was elected again by the clergy. But then, sadly enough, there was nobody great enough to hold out. After that, you lapse back to the same way we are, that Rome just appointed anyone they liked. So only those two archbishops in the history of the church, practically, in modern times, were voted in. John was voted in by a complete majority except his own vote. So then he was to be bishop, and you can imagine the a terrible situation for him. First of all, he was the only bishop in the whole United States. Then after that, his diocese ran from North Massachusetts down to Vincennes and halfway to Illinois. So he would be alone. I don't know how he would have done all the confirmations. <laughs> there was no tradition. Nobody had ever heard of a bishop before, and he didn't know what to do. And then the question came, where should he be consecrated? Rome wrote and said he could come to Rome, 
And the Archbishop of Dublin wrote and said, would he come to Troy to, in Ireland? And then he had an invitation from Toronto. And he weighed them all up, and then eventually he decided, no, I'll go back and be consecrated in England, which was a very striking decision just after the Independence War. He went back to see his old friends, and he went back because he thought he would get more vocations for America from England and from these other countries. So he chose it quite deliberately. So he set out to be made a bishop, and with him in the same boat was the man chosen to be the Episcopalian bishop. So it was the first ecumenical crossing of the Atlantic with these two bishops-elect vomiting into the same hat. <laughs> so uh, then poor, uh, uh, Carol got back to uh, England, and he went straight to Warder to see his dear friends, and then he went to Lulworth, where Thomas Well, a family that never lost the faith, was a great friend of his. And I think he taught him at Sonoma's. Now, Lulworth is most interesting. I mustn't make the talk too long, but Lulworth was the first Catholic church ever allowed in England since the Reformation. And it has a curious history. It's on the coast, right down in Dorsetshire, very near the Channel. And just along the road was Weymouth, which was an ordinary seaside resort. Nobody liked the sea in those days. The man who made bathing popular was our old friend George III, who was half-cracked. And George III was the first monarch ever to get into the sea voluntarily. He had a bathing tent at Weymouth, and a, a tremendous pavilion with sort of knobs on, and he had the whole of the band of the guards playing God Save the King as he stepped out of his bathing tent every morning. Well, so therefore Weymouth became Royal Weymouth, and you can still see the bath at Weymouth in which the king was sitting when Cornwallis was defeated at Yorktown. Old George was having a shower. So that Wells' property was almost touching George III's, and so this Catholic landlord of the most devoted man, he and poor old George III were friends. And so Wells said to George III, can I build a Catholic chapel? There was none allowed. Here you had many, but we had none. Only at mass in private houses. And George III said, yes, you may, but you must disguise it to look as though it wasn't a chapel. In other words, you must make it so that people in the neighborhood won't say there's a Roman Catholic chapel. So, well, did design one, and he made it look like a pavilion where gamblers uh, gathered in the evening for a booze. It's a beautiful sort of Georgian chapel, beautiful thing with balconies, not at all unlike St. Thomas Manor. But when you see it in the garden, you would never think it was a church at all. But inside, it was beautiful. And it was there that John Carroll was consecrated a bishop. And uh, one of the bishops who consecrated him gave him for his pectoral cross an old, old cross that came from Colchester Abbey before the Reformation. And Father Plowden, his great friend, an ex-Jesuit, preached. When John Carroll came back to Maryland, the touching thing is, when he built Baltimore Cathedral, he copied the little chapel from Lulworth. And that's why when I speak about the cathedral at the end, the old cathedral in Baltimore is a most historic and interesting building. John Carroll is buried there. But he got the idea, when I went into it on a visit to Baltimore, I thought, well, I've seen this place before. Only the chapel at Lulworth's not as big as this chapel here. But you just could see certain features, so that the gambling den that George III ordered for the wells is now the cathedral in Baltimore. Now, I'll end on that note, 
when John Carroll had been consecrated, and I think the Episcopalian bishop joined him again for another vomiting match, <laughs> John Carroll came back here in 1790 and was met at Baltimore by all the Catholics. He himself described when he was a little boy, Baltimore had no chapel. It was a little tin pot town with no priest, no chapel, nothing. Now he came back as a bishop, and they took him to the little church of St. Peter's. They could hardly get the crowd in or around it. And then John Carroll made his first address. And I'll, I'll end on that. It's, not, it's a long quotation, but it's very moving. I wish we had bishops who could write as well and speak so firmly as he did then. You'll recognize in his words what a considerable leader he was. You can see that he's going to be firm and determined and really, it was the inspiration. It was the first words ever said by a Catholic bishop in the United States, or at least in that part that had belonged to, formerly to Britain. And I'll read it out, and there we'll end, and the next talk we'll go on with John Carroll. This is what John Carroll said to his people. In this my new station, if my life be not one continual instruction and example of virtue to the people committed to my charge, it will become in the sight of God a life not only useless, but even pernicious. It is no longer enough for me to be inoffensive in my conduct and regular in my manners. God now imposes a severer duty on me. I shall incur the guilt of violating my pastoral office if all my endeavors be not directed to bringing your lives and all your actions into conformity with the laws of God to exhort, to conjure, to reprove, to enter into all your sentiments, to feel all your infirmities, to be all things to all, that I may gain all for Christ. To be superior to human respect, to have nothing in view but God and your salvation, to sacrifice to these health, peace, reputation, and even life itself. To hate sin and yet to love the sinner, to repress the turbulent, to encourage the timid, to watch over the conduct of even the ministers of religion, to be patient and meek, to embrace all kinds of persons, these are now my duties, extensive, pressing, and indispensable duties as they are. But there are other still more burdensome things for me to bear in this particular portion of Christ's church, which is committed to my charge and where everything is to be raised as it was from its foundations. To establish ecclesiastical discipline, to devise means for the religious education of Catholic youth, that precious portion of pastoral solicitude, to provide an establishment for the training of ministers for the sanctuary and the service of religion, that we may not depend on foreign and uncertain help, wonderful. He's the first man who said, I must have an American church. Not to leave unassisted any of the faithful who are scattered through this immense continent. To preserve their faith untainted amidst the contagion of error surrounding them on all sides. To preserve their hearts of warm charity and forbearance towards every other denomination of Christians. And at the same time to preserve them from the fatal and prevailing indifference which views all religion as equally acceptable to God and salutary to man. When I consider these additional duties, my heart seems almost under the impression of terror which comes upon it. 
In God alone can I find any consolation. He knows by what steps I have been conducted to this important station and how much I have always dreaded it. He will not abandon me unless I first draw down his malediction on my unfaithfulness to my charge. Pray, dear brethren, pray incessantly that I may not incur so dreadful a punishment. Alas, the punishment fall on you as well as myself. My unfaithfulness would rebound on you and deprive you of some of the means of salvation. It is a long quotation, but I feel it's worth reading out because that shows the kind of man that John Carroll was. And that's why then he went off and the first thing he did was the starting of Georgetown. And it's very moving to me because St. Omer's was suppressed and the school in fact broke up into two halves. The Maryland Jesuits came back here and started Georgetown and the English Jesuits went back to England at the French Revolution and started Stonyhurst. So Stonyhurst College and Georgetown Prep are twins from the same school that was started in 1593.